Good morning. Welcome to Rivermont today and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7. We return to our study of the book of Daniel this week and yet we leave behind some of the narrative sections of the book, the stories that we've read and we enter into the apocalyptic section of Daniel. Quite often when preachers teach through the book of Daniel, they stop at chapter 6 because the chapters 7 through 12, they're too scary and they're too confusing to keep going. But you know, the apocalyptic sections of the Bible have been inspired by God too. They have a lot to teach us. Although we might have to work a little harder to understand them, the messages are given to us to provide a new set of glasses with which to see the world. Well, what is apocalyptic literature? What are we? How can we describe chapter 7 through 12 of the book of Daniel. Well, apocalyptic literature essentially uses images. Sometimes they're bizarre. Sometimes they're scary. But they're given to encourage God's people when we feel threatened or cut off amidst the destruction of human history. Apocalyptic literature reveals the end of sinful human regimes and their power as they give way to the reign of justice and peace coming in the Lord Jesus. And as we read through these sections of apocalyptic literature, we're given the ability to see Jesus amidst the powers of the world. And it gives us a reason for hope, a reason to keep going, a reason to live and long for what God is going to do in these last days. Let's turn our attention to Daniel chapter 7. We'll read verses 9 through 14 this morning. Daniel wrote... As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. I looked, and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with a cloud of heavens, there came one like the Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit you would open our eyes to see what you have for us here and encourage us in these troublesome days. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite cookies is an Oreo cookie. Maybe you like Oreos too. And when I was a kid, I would separate out you know, the creamy goodness on the inside from the, 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 the cookies on the outside. And I think that if they had ever just marketed and sold the insides of the Oreos... I would have had my mom buy a bag full of just the inside creamy goodness of the Oreos. But they didn't come that way. They came with the inside and the outside together. But the inside, in my mind, made it all worth it. And that's, in a sense, what Daniel gives us here in chapter 7. 
a giant Oreo cookie. There are three parts of this chapter. In verses 1 through 8, he speaks of the evil regimes of this world, the evil that we face. And then in verses 9 to 14, we see the power of God in the face of that evil, ruling and reigning. And then in 15 to 28, there's a conflict that is here. And yet the victor Jesus is sure to prevail. There are two hard parts. There's the evil regimes of humanity. There's the conflict that we experience. But the middle part... The part where God sits and rules and reigns upon the throne, even in the midst of the struggles in this world, that good part in the middle gives us hope to keep going. No matter what we're facing, no matter what struggles we see in this life, His reign is the goodness in the middle that gives us the hope to keep going in the midst of all kinds of terrible problems in our lives. How do we see that in this text? Well, in verses 1 through 8, we're called, I think, to face the brutal facts. In verse 1, we return to the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. It's earlier in Daniel's life when Babylon was strong and it was powerful. And we're given a vision of things that churn in the sea, you note from verse 1. And in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the sea is often used as an image of chaos, an image of mystery. The sea was seen as the entry point into the realm of the dead into the realm of evil. And so out of this realm of evil comes these hybrid and destructive creatures that Daniel describes for us. There's a lion in verse 4 with eagle's wings. Often a lion was used as an image for Babylon in ancient literature. And yet these wings were plucked and demonstrating that this unusual power that Babylon had would be removed. As strong and powerful as this this kingdom of Babylon appeared, it was as weak and as frail as every other human empire. There was a bear in verse 5, raised up with, with ribs in its mouth, ready to destroy, ready to devour. And then in verse 6, we see a leopard with four wings and four heads and representing the, the swiftness of the power and the, the universality of this kingdom that's coming looks all four directions. It's a great expansive empire. And then the fourth is described in verse 7. It's also described in verse 19 and 23. And it really isn't given a name. This fourth beast is just described as being different. It's different in that it is more terrible in its destructive power and it is more terrible in its powerful design. It has a horns of, of ten. That's Five times the ordinary two. This is an unimaginable power that this beast has. And in verse 8, it has an unusual ruler, the little horn. And that's especially troubling. Because this little horn has eyes of a man, meaning it's intelligent. And it has a mouth that speaks great things, meaning it's arrogant. That's That's a really bad combination, isn't it? Intelligence and arrogance mixed together with a terrifying power. These beasts scared Daniel as he saw them. We read that he was terrified as he had this dream. And many historians and and theologians look at these and uh, assign them four historical regimes. The first was Babylon. The second one was the Medes and the Persians. The third was the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And the fourth was Rome. But others see this number four as it's quite often used in apocalyptic literature, especially the book of Zechariah and in Revelation. That Four is used as a number of fullness, 
It's meaning all the regimes, all the, the human empires in our world. Now, whether we interpret these beasts as historical kingdoms or as the number of the fullness of human powers and human regimes, the point is exactly the same. The point is that the world has always been like this. And it's going to continue like this until another king and another kingdom comes to replace these reign of evil at the end of the age. The point is that the world is a scary place. The world is a destructive place. Human authorities, human powers, human governments, human rulers are scary because they're sinners. And the world is filled with destruction because the world is filled with sinners. Paul Tripp once wrote a wonderful book on marriage entitled, What Did You Expect? You chuckle because you probably know exactly what the book is about, right? From a title like that. What did you expect when you put two sinners together in a close and intimate relationship? Yes, you're going to experience joy, but because you're two sinners in the same relationship, you'll have conflict and you'll experience frustration, right? It would be silly to expect anything different from that. And yet the issue isn't narrowly about marriage. What do you expect when you put two single friends in a close relationship? What do you expect when you put parents and children in a close relationship? It seems that the opportunity for conflict and frustration are multiplied by the number of sinners in the network. The more sinners, the more conflict there might be. The more opportunity for frustration there is to be. And Daniel makes the point here that it's also true in human governments and kingdoms. What might you expect if you give power and authority to a large group of sinners, including many who've never known the renewing and rebuilding grace of God in their lives? The corporate sin is driven by the individual sinful hearts of those who are in charge. Of course the world is going to be a scary place. Of course the world is going to be filled with destruction because it's filled with sinners to whom we give almost unlimited power. Of course the world is going to be dangerous because we have sinful hearts and we use these sinful hearts to steal, kill, and destroy as sinners. What Daniel lays out here in verses 1 to 8 is simply the reform doctrine of total depravity applied to governments and empires. That doctrine says that every part of us is affected by sin. None of us are as bad as we could be, but there is no part of who we are that isn't affected by sin. Our will, our decision-making is affected by sin. Our heart and emotions are affected by sin. What we choose to give our lives to is affected by sin. Our bodies are affected by sin. Every part of who we are is affected by sin. It's also true when you grab a whole bunch of these sinners together and tell us to rule and to reign. Human powers bend toward domination and control and exploitation and destruction. That's the overwhelming arc of human history. There might be times and seasons when we see flashes of goodness and we experience the kingdom of God breaking in. But on the whole, if you look at the sweep of human history, you're going to find abuse and destruction among human authorities and power. It's always been that way. And it will always be that way. Until Jesus returns. For all of our 20th century trust and the progress of society, 
the truth is really laid bare if we just take a scan of what the 20th century really looked like, isn't it? The slaughter of World War I. It was destructive. It was brutal. And then think of World War II with Hitler and Stalin. And as we continue in the 20th century with Idi Amin and the slaughter in Syria. And neither is our own country immune from this abuse of power. For example, the way that we've treated African Americans in our own country in the last century. Think of the way African Americans were treated in Selma or in Birmingham or even in our own city as the city swimming pools were closed so that blacks and whites wouldn't be in the same water. Abuse of authority, abuse of power is what people do. The lesson of verses 1 through 8 is that people are no good and so am I. That's the lesson of verses 1 through 8. If we're going to put our trust in human progress, our trust is misplaced. We must put our trust somewhere else. Our hopes for redemption, our hopes for true and eternal life have to be put in another king and another kingdom. As we experience going into an election season, if this scripture tells us anything, it tells you don't put your hope in who occupies the seats of power. The seats of the White House, the seats of Congress. Because even when good men and women enter into those halls of power, there is a draw toward corruption. There is a draw toward the intoxicating effect of power that is hard to combat. Because people are no good, and so am I. That corrupting influence isn't just out there, friends. It's, it's in here. It's in my heart and it's in your heart. We are proved to be fools if we trust in our own goodness, if we trust in our own power, if we trust in our own ability to reform our lives. Don't trust yourself. Don't believe any longer, I'd never do what that other person did. No longer be shocked at what runs through your mind or your, your heart or your emotions. Because the truth is, friends, we are depraved. We are broken and sinful human beings. People are no good, and so am I. But that's not the whole of the story, is it? Our God can prevail. Our God is able to subdue unruly hearts like mine and like yours and like the kingdoms of men. We have to face the brutal facts. But that's not where the story ends. You see in verses 9 through 14 that although the brutality of history is before us, we see a faithful God who's in the center of it all. As we've been listening to this, this horrifying symphony of destruction and terror from verses 1 to 8, the transition in verse 9 is like someone scratched the needle across the record. It's an abrupt change. Because we don't anymore hear of the, the, the devouring beasts but rather we're admitted into the throne room of heaven and we see the very best part. We see the Ancient of Days in verses 9 through 10. We see the ruling Son of Man in verses 13 and 14. And in between these skyscrapers of power and goodness, we see the puny rulers that are put in perspective. How does this function to encourage us, though? As Brett mentioned a moment ago, the Ancient of Days doesn't mean a really old man. It's not that we're supposed to be encouraged because an old guy sits on the throne. That's not the idea. But rather think like the exiles of Judah would have thought. 
In their world, the Ancient of Days is a term for respect and grand power. Someone who knows and has the ability to do better than anyone else in the community. This Ancient of Days, this vision of God sitting on the throne in verse 9, He's on the throne of power and He's clothed in white. He's radiant in His purity and His hair is of wool. It's a, a picture of wisdom that comes with age. Our God doesn't fret. Our God doesn't pace. He's not vexed for what to do next. He sits. He sits calmly in power, in charge, and able to wisely know what is best, as well as have the power to pursue what is best and pursue what is good. So often in this world, we feel confused We feel worried. We feel the lack of the ability to know where to go next, to know what to do next, to to see our way through the problem in front of us. Isn't it comforting to know that God never feels that way? Ever. He has never felt that way, confused and not having any idea as to what to do next. God never feels that way. He knows. And He's the one who's in charge. And he's the one who has the power to bring about his own will. Daniel tells us in verse 10 that he sees a, a burning presence of holiness too. He's not only wise, but he's holy in his power. He's not one to forget about the calamity or the abuse or the terror that those evil regimes foment on the world. His burning passion is for justice. His burning passion is for purity. Our God knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's going on in this world. He knows the wounds that you feel. He knows the ways that you've been abused. He knows how you've been attacked. He knows that one of His own ministers, one of His own servants, was crucified by ISIS on Good Friday. He knows that. He hasn't forgotten that. He knows it. And He is not going to let anyone get away with the oppression and the destruction that we see in our world. For verse 10 also tells us he has an innumerable army at his disposal. And Daniel had to multiply the multiplication tables to make sense of what he saw. There were thousands of thousands. There were ten thousand of ten thousands around the throne. Our God is wise. He's powerful. He knows and he's never confused. And he sees exactly what is going on in the hearts and in the lives of his people. And on the other side... In verses 13 and 14, we see the Son of Man. And He's not like the beasts, but He's like a man in verse 13. But He has divine power and divine authority in verse 14. He has so much power that all the languages and peoples and nations will serve Him. Another way to translate that Aramaic verb is they will worship Him. So remember, amidst all of these terrifying empires of humanity, every one of them must serve the Lord Jesus. That's what this tells us. Amid all the destructive forces of this world, amid all the empires and regimes of humanity, every one of them are accountable to the Lord Jesus. They're all on a leash and the Lord holds it. Interesting to me that even at the worst hour of Jesus' earthly life, He returned to this passage. And He told us that He was the Son of Man who was on the throne. We read about it in Mark 14 where Jesus was placed under arrest and Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Jesus whether He was the Messiah. And Jesus came back to this passage. 
He said, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and returning in the clouds. Jesus is the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And He's the one who's coming in power and in judgment over all peoples and all nations and all evil. And even at that moment, He knew that that rain comes at a a great price. It was a terrible price for the Son of Man, the one who has given His life to defeat evil, the evil that terrorizes His people. Even, maybe perhaps especially, as Jesus went to the cross, He was on the throne to rule and reign in judgment. From the throne of the cross, Jesus put sin and death to an end, including the power of the regimes of the beasts. He put it all to death. Friends, if you are scared about the powers you see in this world, if you're scared about the effect of sin and destruction in your own life, look again at the Son of Man who rules from the cross. He went to the cross to bring it all to an end. And He came out of the grave alive, victorious over sin and death. These destructive powers that we read about in the world, they are also in us and they have been squeezed by the conquering power of God Almighty. He shall prevail in every single place where there is a touch and a taint of sin or death or evil. Jesus will fully and finally wipe it away when He returns again. He has defeated it on the cross. His blood has wiped us clean. And His resurrection has given victory over it all. Seeing that vision of Jesus and the Father on the throne, it may not keep us from fear. Seeing that vision may not keep us from frailty in this life. But if you look closely enough, it will keep you from freaking out. It will keep you from thinking, this world is under the control of chaos. And no one is that the controls. Keep your eyes on the one who sits upon the throne. Even when your eyes see all these troubles, all these trials, all these persecutions, all these difficulties in your own life, our Father says, look at me. When Emma, my daughter, was three years old, she had to go into the hospital for a procedure. And this procedure had to be done in the operating room. And Missy and I had the privilege of going in there with her and the room was all green and there were people in masks and there were scary tubes and wires and all kinds of stuff for a three-year-old little girl. And as she was wheeled into that room on that gurney, I could see her eyes looking around, just taking it all in, terrified. And she would look back at Missy, she'd look back at me from time to time. We could see the panic building. We could see the tears starting to come. She looked at us and she began to sob a little bit. She was terrified at what she saw. And then right before the procedure started, Emma gave me one last look and she said, Daddy, Daddy, are you here? She wanted to know, was I there? All this scary stuff going on. All these things that looked like threats to her. And what she wanted to know the most is, Daddy, are you here? Because if Daddy's there, then I can handle it. Because there's someone in this room who loves me. There's someone in this room who's committed to me. There's someone in this room who will make sure that I'm going to be okay. Friends, for us, 
as we look around at all the pain and the struggle of our lives, we don't need to panic. Because we can look at whatever trial we face and say, Daddy, are you here? Father, are you here with me? Because if you are here with me, if you are the one I just hear described, the, the ancient of days, if, if you are the one ruling in power, then I can go through whatever's attacking me right now. Because you, Father, you are with me. Even though the tears flow, even though I'm afraid, if we know that our Father is here, we can go through it. And if you know that your Father is with you, then you know that there is no power over you that He can't defeat. There's no power over you that He is not able to rescue you. You're safe in His hands. Look to your Father for encouragement. Send His Son to the cross in your place to conquer your and my evil. And He's the one who rules over the beasts, over the sin, and over the destruction. Keeping our eyes focused on the good creamy center can make the rest of it get put in proper perspective. The last section of this chapter is verses 15 to 28 where we see there's a victor in the conflict. If we don't hear anything else from that section, let's camp out on verse 18 that we will prevail with Jesus. What Come what may, the good shepherd is going to prevail with his people. The saints. But the conflict is going to be fierce, we read in verses 21 to 24. This little horn is going to make war on God's children. And for a season, that war looks like it's going to prevail. And it's going to cover all the earth, we see in verses 23 to 25. In fact, the conflict transcends the earth. There are a few places in this text where we read about the saints. In verse 18 and 21 and 22 and 27. And it looks like these saints are losing until the Ancient of Days strengthens them. But who are they? Who are those saints that are described? Well, the Aramaic word that's used here is ambiguous. Sometimes it's used to describe God's people. Sometimes the same word is used to describe powerful angels. It's used both both ways in different places. So who's being described here? Well, I think that In God's inspiring of Daniel, he chose an ambiguous term because he means both. Both will prevail. Both God's people will triumph together with Jesus. And we are joined in the fight by angels, by powerful beings sent to help us from the throne room of God. Those ten thousands of ten thousands are dispatched to defend you and me as God's children. God's powerful and holy and righteous ones, we're going to see later in this book, they take up our cause and fight alongside us until Jesus prevails on the last day. You're not alone. You're not alone in this struggle. You're not alone in this fight in this world. God's innumerable army is put in the fight to protect you, to serve you. Even though, verse 25 tells us, this whole thing is by God's doing. Verse 25 tells us all of this trouble and this persecution is given by God. It comes from His hand. But here's where the comfort comes from. All of this is given for a limited time period. We read that it's a a time and times and half a time in verse 25. It's three and a half 
And that's the biblical number of completion is seven. Three and a half is half of that. So what does that mean? Well, some people think it means that there's going to be a massive tribulation that lasts for three and a half years. But grammatically, that doesn't work in the text. Because the phrase in verse 25 is a time and time and half a times. That is, it's plural. It's not ordinal. It doesn't say one year, two years, and then add a half. It's describing an image for plural powers, plural evil that comes for a season. The picture is that the the power of evil in our lives looks like it starts off with a bang and it threatens to go on forever, but it's going to be cut off. It's going to be cut short before it comes to completion. Before it is ripened to destroy forever, God will cut it short. The Ancient of Days, using His powerful angels, will bring that rain, bring that power of destruction and evil. He will bring it to an end. Because this whole world and our lives, friends, are firmly in the hands of our loving Good Shepherd. And even all of this persecution will be limited by His design and His power. So whatever evil you're facing, whatever struggles you're having in your life, know that God has the power to cut it short according to His design. And that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us going as we see the, the, the troubles, the, the, the conflict in our world. We see the power of these human regimes. What keeps us going is knowing that we have a faithful and powerful God who will prevail. Who not only promises that He will prevail, but He has the power to deliver on that promise. And so whatever you're feeling hard-pressed or crushed by the weight of sin, or worry over what's happening in this world, keep your eyes on the center, on the ruling and the reigning Lord Jesus. Whatever you face, you don't face it alone. You face it together with Jesus. You face it together with His, His army. And the Lord Almighty is with you. Wherever you're going through, He's called you, He bought you with His own blood, and He shall come again to bring you home safely. And until He does, keep your eyes on the center. When the world threatens and your trials seem like they're about to overtake you, cry out, Daddy, are you there? And you will find a faithful Father eager to deliver. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your power to rest upon us, to give us eyes to see. Eyes to see the truth. Eyes to see you ruling and reigning even amidst the hard parts of our lives, even when it feels like our lives are spinning in chaos. May you give us the ability to see you seated upon the throne, calmly ruling in love for us. Teach us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.